Alright. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this morning as we continue our discussion and study of the Acts of the Apostles. Help us then to focus on how your Holy Spirit has opened the minds and the hearts of so many people at that early time and intervened in many ways uh, to make sure that Christianity spread uh, through those people who were really open and interested uh, in accepting new ideas and new concepts. So help us to open our minds and our hearts so that we might accept things that uh, we might not otherwise if it was not for your Holy Spirit intervening in our lives. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Today we're going to get into Paul's third missionary journey, which covers a lot of the same territory with one major exception. And we'll get into that as we go along. Okay. So if we'll start on page 86. Any questions, any of you that uh, have studied this or any questions that you might would like to ask or have answered before we get started? Yes, sir. Well, <laughs> I agree with everything except the two years. Uh, no, unfortunately we don't. But we know that in certain areas he did not stay that long because he wasn't welcome. He did establish many what we would call house churches at that time. But he would leave those in the hands of the local people and move on. So everything you said was correct except for uh, a fixed two two years at each place. Um, and in some one one place it clearly states that he stayed three years. Uh, yes, we, yes, we do. Uh, but, uh, no, I would, I would say that he was successful, except that, uh, it was more, uh, it was brought out more through the people who were left there rather than Paul himself. And Paul was not, uh, overly concerned with attention drawn to himself. 
as long as his message got across. And it certainly did. Yeah. Yes. I have a question about that. Um, it seems that Because there's no written record. Yeah. You see, Luke followed Paul for most of his third missionary journey, and to some degree, a little bit of the second. But we don't really have any record of what the others did. Now, we do to some degree about St. Peter, and obviously from other sources, we know something about John, the evangelist. But And then there's a mention of James, John's brother, but the others we don't know. In fact, Pope Benedict, before he, just before he became the Pope, wrote a book called The Apostles. And there's a great deal in there in the preface to emphasize what the Apostles did collectively. And then he goes through Peter, James, and John, and Paul. But when he gets to the others, you know, it's like two pages on each one. Because there simply isn't any written record. It's not that they didn't. Many of them went way beyond Jerusalem, as far as India, and over to Spain, and north. But we don't know really what they accomplished. Yeah, yeah Jim? It is, uh, if you go to the book of Numbers, in fact, that's an interesting point. Let's hold this off for just a moment, and uh, we'll read what it says, and then I'll bring that part in. Because um, it is kind of an interesting thing, all right? It says, Paul remained for quite a while, in Antioch, that is. Uh, And after saying farewell to the brothers, he sailed for... Syria, together with Priscilla and Aquila. Now, Priscilla and Aquila are a husband and wife team that he met long before this. And they were very instrumental in Rome, but had been expelled from Rome, uh, as it says here a little later, by Claudius, uh, because Claudius expelled all of the Jews, didn't care whether they were Christians or Jewish Jews make no difference. And uh, Priscilla and Aquila were part of that team, and they became very instrumental uh, later on as, uh, you might say, heads of these house churches. Okay. Uh, he then uh, had his hair cut because he had taken a vow, all right, Now, that's because he is in this town called, whatever it is, here, I won't won't dare to even pronounce it, okay? Now, let me go to the book of Numbers. And I'll give you a little background on that here. This is the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 6. It says, 
Well, there's a little explanation. It says, laws concerning Nazarites. Okay. This was sort of a devotional group within the Orthodox Jewish community. It says, to be a Nazarite, this is a ritual for the Nazarite. On the day he completes the period of his dedication, he shall go to the entrance of the meeting tent, bringing as his offering to the Lord one unblemished yearling lamb for a holocaust, one unblemished yearling ewe lamb for a sin offering, and one unblemished ram as a peace offering, along with their cereal offerings and libations, and a basket of unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, and of unleavened wafers spread with oil. Unleavened wafers is sort of a reference, you might say, to the future manna and also to the host that we have today in our communion. Remember, the host that we have today is made solely with uh, unbleached flour and oil. Or olive oil, that is, too. He shall then take up the ram as a peace offering to the Lord with a cereal offering and a libation and the basket of unleavened cakes. Then at the entrance of the meeting tent, the Nazarite shall shave his dedicated head, collect the hair, put it in the fire that is under the peace offering. After the Nazarite has shaved off his dedicated hair, the priest shall take a boiled shoulder of the ram, as well as one unleavened cake and one unleavened wafer from the basket, and shall place them in the hands of the Nazarite. The priest shall then wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. They become sacred and shall belong to the priest, along with the breast of the wave offering and the leg of the raised offering the leg of the raised offering. Okay. Only after this may the Nazarite drink wine. Prior to this, he had to forego all wine and Welch's grape juice. This then is the law for the Nazarite. This is the offering to the Lord which is included in his vow of dedication apart from anything else which means his means may allow. Thus shall he carry out the law of dedication in keeping with the vows he has taken. All right, this is not something that lasted a great amount of time in the Jewish community and is not often known. The Nazarite is not necessarily a person from Nazareth. Okay, That has to be made rather clearly. Okay, the Nazarite is a man who has taken a special vow of dedication, particularly in preaching and teaching the Jewish faith. Now, this is what Paul and, um, who are we talking about? I'm sorry? No, now, Jose is bringing up the, the story of Samson. All right, 
Samson, uh, that is an entirely different story that uh, Samson came along long after this particular devotion sort of died out. Okay. Remember, the book of Numbers goes all the way back to the time of Moses. Samson came along uh, nearly 200 years later. And by that time, the whole ceremony had died out. But we still have, even today, you will find a a sect within the Jewish, the Orthodox Jewish community called the Hasidics. And they're the ones that particularly... If you go to uh, the East Coast, uh, New England, New York, etc., you'll see them wearing uh, long black uh, clothes, uh, coat, uh, a flat top hat uh, with a wide brim and the curls, and they do not shave, ever. I'm so glad you added that. <laughs> yes, Jen, Jennifer. Because he was among people of that interest and persuasion. Yeah. Yes, Nazarite. See, actually, he's you know he's in Syria now. He's not. Uh, in Israel. Okay, yeah. And that was very important to those people at that time. Yeah. Okay. Let us, let us go on. <clears throat> when he reached Ephesus, he left them there, that is the Nazarites, where he had, where, while he entered the synagogue and held discussions with the Jews, Although they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. You see, he didn't stay very long, certainly not two years. But as he said farewell, he promised, I shall come back to you again, God willing. Then he set sail for Ephesus. Upon landing at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch, up and down, up and down, okay? After staying there some time, he left and traveled in orderly sequence through the Galatian country and Phrygia. This is the beginning of his third missionary journey, uh, bringing strength to all of the disciples. He's covering territory that he had established earlier. A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, an eloquent speaker, arrived in Ephesus. He was an authority on the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord with an ardent spirit, spoke and taught accurately about Jesus, although he knew only the baptism of John. Now here's somewhat of a contradiction here, because if someone only knew the baptism of John, how would he know a great deal about Jesus? This person, Apollos, is sort of a mysterious figure that comes in and goes out several of the books of the New Testament. Uh, He's mentioned two or three times in Paul's letters. 
And it is thought by some Bible scholars that he is also the writer of the letter to the Hebrews. Whenever you hear uh, passages from Hebrews, it is not Paul's letter to the Hebrews. It is just the letter to the Hebrews because the writer is unknown. It is a beautiful, beautiful letter, one of my favorites of the New Testament, uh, because it brings in a great deal of history, uh, setting up a comparison of Christianity against Judaism, not in a derogatory way, but in a way that shows the strength and the grace of Christianity uh, versus the exclusivism of Judaism. Okay, But we don't really know who wrote it, but many scholars believe this Apollos wrote it. Uh, Apollos was to my knowledge, and there is no record in any of the scriptures here that really tells us who he is, except for this little description right here. He is from Alexandria. All right, well, now that is Africa. We have not had any indication so far that Paul ever went down there or whoever of um, the rest of the apostles may have gone to Alexandria and began to convert the Jews there. But uh, obviously they did. But this must have been quite a bit later because it would have taken time for the Jew, the, the apostles to go to North Africa and establish um, house churches there and develop people who were as it indicates here, uh, Paulus, uh, who were so zealous that they wished to start teaching about Jesus Christ, even though they had only known uh, the baptism of John. There's a little bit of contradiction there, because you would think that if it was the uh, one of the twelve apostles that went there, they would have taken the true baptism, not the baptism of John, but the baptism that Jesus authorized. Okay. Now, you've got to remember that the baptism of Jesus is by water and pronouncing the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. John's baptism didn't have that. All right, It had the water, obviously, but not the words. Those words were given uh, to the apostles by Christ himself in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. Even today, if a person is dedicated with sprinkling of little water, but not the proper words, that is not an authorized or legitimate baptism. And we have many non-Catholic Christian communities that baptize but not using the proper words when a person from that community wishes to become a Catholic, normally, if they were, if they had gone through a legitimate baptism, even in their own faith, they would not have to be rebaptized in the Catholic faith. But, if they did, 
if they did not uh, receive baptism with those words and with water, then they would have to be rebaptized. Okay. All right, let's go on. Paul in Ephesus. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior of the country and came down to Ephesus, where he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? And they answered him, We have never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul said, Well then, how were you baptized? They replied with the baptism of John. See, exactly what I just got through saying. Paul then said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, which was good and all of that, but it was not what we would call a sacrament. It was a pious uh, devotion, telling people to to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. When they heard this, these people now in Ephesus, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came down upon them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Together, there were about 12 men. He entered the synagogue and for three months debated boldly with the persuasive arguments about the kingdom of God. But when some of their obstinacy and disbelief disparaged the way before the assembly, he withdrew and took his disciples with him and began to hold daily discussions in the lecture hall at Tyrannus. This continued for two years with the result that all of the inhabitants of the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord, Jews and Greek alike. So extraordinary were the mighty deeds God accomplished at the hands of Paul that when face cloths or aprons that touched his skin were applied to the sick, their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Down at the top of the commentary there, it says the summary that is beginning with chapter 8, I mean verse 8, pardon me. The summary description in verses 8 through 12 portrays the shape of the next 27 months of Paul's evangelization. 27 months, presumably the length of the entire third journey. says, then some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those with evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. <laughs> when the seven sons of Sheba, a Jewish high priest, tried to do this, the evil spirits said to them in reply, Jesus I recognize, Paul I know. But who are you? You know, Paul must, I mean, uh, Luke must have had a sense of humor. You know, there's a few of those kind of funnies in here. The person with the evil spirit then sprang at them and subdued them all. 
He so overpowered them that they fled naked and wounded from that house. When this became known to all the Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, fear fell upon them and them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in great esteem. Many of those who had become believers came forward and openly acknowledged their former practices. Moreover, a large number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them in public. They calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 silver pieces. Thus did the word of the Lord continue to spread with influence and power. So you can see how the Holy Spirit is really intervening in many ways uh, to make sure that the words that Paul is speaking is getting out in a very pronounced way, profound way, you might say. When this was concluded, Paul made up his mind to travel through Macedonia and Archaea, and then Archaea, not Archaea, and then to go on to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must visit Rome also. Then he sent to Macedonia two of his assistants, Timothy and Erastus, while he himself stayed for a while in the province of Asia. Well, now we have another sort of interesting story here. About that time, a serious disturbance broke out concerning the way. I am emphasizing that when I say that, because that is what Christianity was first known as. Remember, it was not a break-off until much later from Judaism. It was thought to be a separate sect that was being developed within Judaism. But it was called the way. Remember, that came from Jesus' words where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this phrase, the way, comes from that statement. There was a silversmith named Demetrius who made miniature silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis and provided no little work for the craftsmen. He called a meeting of these and other workers in related crafts and said, Men, you know well that our prosperity derives from this work. As you can now, <coughs> excuse me, as you can now see and hear, not only in Ephesus, but throughout most of the province of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and misled a great number of people by saying that Gods made by hands are not gods at all. The danger grows. Not only that our business will be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis uh, will be of no account, and that she whom the whole province of Asia and all the world worship will be stripped of her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with fury and began... Sounds like one of our unions today, isn't it? The city was filled with confusion and the people rushed with one accord into the theater, seizing Gaius and Erastus, 
and the Macedonians, Paul's traveling companions. Paul wanted to go before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. And even some of the, whatever this is, who, who were friends of his, sent word to him, advising him not to venture into the theater. Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing and others something else. The assembly was in chaos, and most of the people had no idea why they had come together. Hmm, sounds more like our unions and our politicians. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander as the Jews pushed him forward, and Alexander signaled with his hand that he wished to explain something to the gathering. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis and the Ephesians. Finally, the town clerk restrained the crowd and said, You Ephesians, what person is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the guarding of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image that fell from the sky? Since these things are made undeniable, you must calm yourselves and not do anything rash. The men you brought here are not temple robbers, nor have they insulted our goddess. If Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a complaint against anyone, courts are in session, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. If you have anything further to investigate, let the matter be settled in the lawful assembly. For as it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's conduct. There is no cause for it. We shall not be able to give a reason for this demonstration. With these words, he dismissed the assembly. Now, why did he do that? Remember, this was a Roman province, still part of the Roman Empire. And even though Rome allowed people to pretty much proceed and live as they had before, whenever there was a major disturbance of people that would possibly uh, result in some kind of a backlash against the Romans, they would come in immediately and start to squash that. And that is what this guy is trying to prevent. Okay. The Romans getting involved in this dispute between uh, the Jews, uh, the pagans, and the Christians. Okay. When the disturbance was over, Paul had the disciples summoned, and after encouraging them, he bade them farewell and set out on his journey to Macedonia. As he traveled throughout those regions, he provided many words of encouragement for them, and then he arrived in Greece, where there he stayed for three months. But when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return by way of Macedonia. Sopater, the son of, hmm, I had to have a name like that, um, accompanied him, as did, oh, and this one I can pronounce, Erasticus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy and Tychicus, uh, Trophimus from Israel, who went on ahead, waited for us, 
as at Troas. We sailed. Now here again, Paul is injecting himself through the personal pronoun of usage of us and we. Hmm? I'm sorry. Paul and Luke. Luke is injecting himself. Yes. Thank you. Got so many different names here, I'm getting them all mixed up. My name is Joe. We sailed, we sailed uh, from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What is the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Passover, right. And rejoined them five days later in Troas, where we spent a week. Eutychus restored to life. Well, this is another interesting little story here. You can imagine just thinking about this one as we, we read it. On the first day of the week, when we gathered to break bread, Paul spoke to them because he was going to leave on the next day, and he kept on speaking until midnight. <clears throat> there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, who was sitting on the windowsill, was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Once overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story, and when he was picked up, he was dead. Paul went down and threw himself upon him, and said as he embraced him, Don't be alarmed, there is light in him. And then he returned upstairs, broke the bread, and ate. After a long conversation that lasted until daybreak, he departed, and they took the boy away alive, and were immeasurably Comforted. Now, you can just imagine, you know, a guy sitting there in the window. Of course, there's no screens in those days. Uh, and listening to Paul and listening to Paul and listening to Paul, you know, and gradually falls out the window. I think all of us would kind of identify with that, okay? But, there's something in here that you may not have recognized. Okay. It's an evening meal. Okay. And there is the breaking of the bread. There is a death. And there is a resurrection. Did you notice that? It is sort of uh, what's that? Not a real resurrection, that's true, but a restoring of life. Yes, a very important point. But in a way, it's a sort of a reflection of the Last Supper, is it not? Yeah. Next page. We went ahead to the ship and set sail for, uh, uh, some of these names, you'll have to excuse me, but I just don't want to even attempt to pronounce them. <laughs> it's all Greek to me, you see. Uh, set sail where we were uh, to take Paul on board, as he had arranged, since he was going overland. When we met 
when he met us at a source or whatever, uh, we took him aboard and went on to, um, let's say, Mytilene, okay? We, <laughs> we sailed away from there on the next day and reached a point off of Chios. And a day later, we reached Samos. And on the following day, we arrived at Miletus. Well, okay, that sounds like a travel log. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus in order not to lose time in the province of Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if at all possible for the day of Pentecost. Now, we're talking almost a year later, because we had talked earlier about um, uh, Passover. Okay. Paul's farewell speech at Miletus. From Miletus, he had the presbyters of the church at Ephesus summoned. When they came to him, he addressed them. You know how I lived among you the whole time. From the day I first came to the province of Asia, I served the Lord with all humility and with the tears and trials that came to me because of the plots of the Jews. And I did not at all shrink from telling you what was for your benefit or from teaching you in public or in your homes. I earnestly bore witness of for Jews, for both Jews and Greeks, to repentance before God and the faith. Faith in our Lord Jesus. But now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. What will happen to me there, I do not know, except that in one city after another, the Holy Spirit has been warning me that imprisonment and hardships await me, and yet I consider life of no importance to me if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to bear witness to the gospel of grace. Very important statement because that is kind of how we should all be living. Right? To fulfill the role that God gives each one of us over and above anything else. But now I know that none of you to whom I preached the kingdom during my travels will ever see my face again. And so I solemnly declare to you this day that I am not responsible for the blood of any of you, for I did not shrink from proclaiming to you the entire plan of God. Keep watch over yourselves and over the whole flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you overseers in which you tend the church of God that he, that he acquired with his own blood. I want to go come back to this in a minute. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, and they will not spare the flock. And from your own group, men will come forward perverting the truth to draw the disciples away from them. So be vigilant and remember that for three years, night and day, I unceasingly admonished each of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to that gracious word of his that can build you up and give you the inheritance among all uh, consecrated, among all who are consecrated. I have never wanted anyone silver or gold or clothing. 
You know well that these very hands you have served my needs and my companions. In every way I have shown you that by hard work of that sort, we must help the weak and keep in mind the words of the Lord Jesus, who himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I want to go back to um, verse 27 at the top of page 95 here. For I did not shrink from proclaiming to you the entire plan of God. What plan is he talking about? That's God's overall plan of salvation, something that was developed right from um, the beginning of creation. The whole idea of what Christianity or what Judaism before and Christianity since has um, brought forth. I want to read a section from Paul's letter to the Ephesians here, which sheds a little more light on that. This is uh, Paul's uh, letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has bestowed on us in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavens. God chose us, us meaning all Christians, in him, Jesus, before the world began to be holy and blameless in his sight and to be full of love. He likewise predestined us through Jesus Christ to be his adopted sons. Such was his will and pleasure that all might praise the glorious favor he has bestowed on us in his beloved. And this is where we get into what Paul is talking about here. It is in Christ and through his blood that we have been redeemed and our sins forgiven. So immeasurably generous is God's favor to us. For God has given us the wisdom to understand fully the mystery, the plan he was <clears throat> pleased to, decry, to decree or to develop or bring to fulfillment in Christ, to be carried out in the fullness of time, mainly to bring all things, all creation, in the heavens and on earth, under, into one united body, under Christ's headship, or leadership. Now, if you skip over to chapter 3, uh, of that same letter, it says, I am sure that you have heard of the ministry which God in his goodness gave me in your regard. That is God's, uh, or Paul's role in God's plan of salvation. And that is why to me, Paul, a prisoner for Christ, Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, God's secret plan, as I have briefly described it to you, has been revealed. And when you read what I have said, you will realize that I know what I'm talking about in speaking of the mystery of Christ. So he goes on. Now, obviously, he's not giving us all the details, but we had talked about those before. 
how he, after his conversion, went to Arabia and spent considerable amount of time there. We don't know how much, but it was probably something like three years. And during that time, he had uh, these great revelations. And that is how he learned all of the theology that he taught, because he never spent uh, any significant amount of time with any of the other apostles. You know, obviously, he was not uh, with the 12 apostles during the life of Christ. So the question always kind of arises in people's mind, well, where did he get all that information? It was through the Holy Spirit during this time that he spent in Arabia. And then when that time was ended, he comes back to Damascus and picks up where he left off, you might say, uh, at the time of his conversion. And then that's when we read here in chapter 9 how it starts as if he started preaching right away, but that's not the case. And that's why when you read, you know, what we should really have done is spend a great deal more time than 10 weeks on studying the Acts of the Apostles, but also studying some of Paul's letters at the same time. Then you get a a better understanding of, uh, let me see that book you you have. Then you get a better understanding of what Paul is preaching to these various house churches. Karen just showed me this book here uh, by Ignatius Press. It's called The World of St. Paul. It goes into far more detail than what we are able to get out of this little commentary here. And if you read this, it is like reading this plus the letters in the rest of the New Testament. Thank you. Highly recommend that. But do you, do you understand, you see what I'm saying about how you can get so much more out of the Acts of the Apostles if you read the letters uh, to the various house churches that Paul has visited in the past, uh, beginning with uh, the first and second letters to the Thessalonians, the first and second letters to the Corinthians. Paul never got to Rome. He wrote his greatest letter uh, to the Romans, but he never actually got there. He never really, he never got there, let's say, as a missionary. He finally got there as a prisoner, but not as a missionary. I want to stop here. Uh, because I want to talk about the other subject that we had discussed last week. The whole idea of church. We've talked about our role in God's plan of salvation. But I don't 
want you to think that that role can be isolated from every other role. And the word, the reason I use the word role rather than vocation or calling, which all has pretty much the same idea, is because role generally means uh, that it is worked out in connection with other people. It is like a role in a play. You don't have a play with only one person. You have a presentation that can be, and you have quite often, I remember the fellow that used to impersonate Mark Twain. I forgot his name offhand. Holbrook, that's right. Uh, But that wasn't really a play. It was more of a presentation of various aspects of Mark Twain, all conducted through a monologue uh, by one person. But a play embodies several people. It can be a great number, or it can be only three or four. There's a play that's out right now, something about uh, you're great, you're wonderful, and I'll change, or something. I forgot exactly the title. I saw it one time, and I thought it was kind of silly, but uh, so be it. But a play involves people. Okay, all working together to produce a message of some kind. And that is why I use the word role in God's plan of salvation, because that must be carried out in conjunction with other people. God is not asking us to do uh, a job that excludes others, but rather includes others. That was the the problem with uh, the Jewish people, is because they would not reach out beyond themselves uh, and open the doors to Judaism and the teachings that God gave to them originally through the patriarchs and the prophets. They became exclusive and wanted to keep all of that to themselves and that was not God's original intention. And therefore, through Christ, he opens the door Uh, And through Christianity, we want to embrace the whole world. So each of us has a role to play in that plan that we just talked about here. And that plan is sort of embodied through the church. I'm not talking about the priests or the deacons or the bishops or even the pope. I'm talking about the concept of church. And that is what I really would like you to get better fixed in your mind what this all means. Because you're part of it. You wouldn't be here if you were not. But do you really see yourselves as part of a much larger organization whose main purpose is to further the message, the teachings, and the actions of Jesus Christ. That is what we're trying to really get across. The church. What is it? Now, unfortunately, God put that in the hands of human beings. And it started to break down right from that point. But the idea is what we're trying to get 
sort of fixed in our own minds. Not the problems that came about by the humanity of some individuals within the church. You're going to have that in the very best of organizations. There will always affect, you know, uh, Cesar Chavez of Venezuela. No, that's not right. Hugo. All right. Hugo. Okay. Died yesterday. And uh, I don't want to uh, offend anybody that might uh, be sympathetic with him, but politicians throughout the world uh, had a, a difficult time, let's say, understanding his message and his point of view and his methods. Uh, and yet you had some politician uh, from the Bay Area who just praised the, the daylights uh, of this guy in the newspapers and in some uh, meeting yesterday. So regardless, uh, you will always have somebody that will take an opposing point of view. What we're trying to do today and what I'm trying to get across is that we have to ignore a lot of that and look at what does God want out of us? What is the purpose of the church? And how do we fit into it? That is really a very important point because if you exclude yourselves from the church, you are being like the Jewish people who excluded themselves from God himself and would not carry his message to others. I know some very dear people. I, when I lived in Sun City, I had some very dear friends who are still friends, even though I disagree with uh, their thinking. But when I asked them, why do you not get involved in any of the uh, social aspects of Sun City or the church, they said, oh, we did that before we retired. Now we don't want more of a part of it. You can't do that. Because what you're doing is you're excluding yourself from the rest of humanity. And when the chips are down, who do you call on? Who is going to help you when you really need help? People have forgotten you after a number of years. People still invite you and then after a while, when you do not respond, you do not participate, they no longer include you in. And that is kind of the way society works. If you do not participate within the church, you are excluding yourselves from God. Because God, through the church, is part of us, and we are part of him. As Paul tells us, particularly in Corinthians and a little bit more in Romans, that we are the church. We are the hands and the feet and the eyes and the voice of God himself. And that's the way God planned it. But if we do not become one of the hands or the feet or the eyes or the voice of God, then we are excluding ourselves 
from God. I don't want to belabor the point, but anyone have any comment on any of that? Or disagreement? If you have a disagreement, now you're going to get a, a bad mark on your report card. Yes, Cora? We have to reflect individually what is my role at this time in my life. My role primarily in the family as a grandma, as a, as a parishioner. In other words, I'm not thinking of the whole thing, but primarily for me individually, what can I do as an individual? What is my role in the church? With respect to my being a grandma, being a mother, I have to evangelize and reach my family first. That's not being selfish because I feel that people around me need me to reach out. Right. So I cannot say that I'm done away with you, you guys are married, you guys have your own life. No, as long as I'm here, I have a role to do. If I can reach out then at this point in my life, that is what I want to do. Good. Instead of isolating myself, I have to reach out now that there are people around me that need me. And I have to be very careful when I do that so that I can push them away. Amen. For what for those of you who may not have heard, you know, Cora's here she says she is a grandmother, a mother, and a wife, and she has many contacts, and therefore she feels that her role is uh, to spread the word of God to her family first, and that's true. Uh, we do not have to be uh, teachers like I am, or you do not have to be a priest or a a nun or the bishop or whatever. God wants you to further his plan to those people that you touch every day. Just where you are and who you are today. He's not asking you to change. But he's asking you to open your heart and your mind and arms and voice to those people around you so that they can see who you are and the beauty of church through what you say and what you do. In other words, your life should reflect your Christianity, your Catholic faith. And how many of us really watch what we say and what we do so that our life does? Uh, yesterday I was in a small group where there were some rather um, unsavory jokes to mention. And I felt it was my duty to speak up and say, I don't like that kind of discussion. I think it's demeaning, debasing, and not to anyone's credit. Well, they kind of look at me, you know, but I feel I have an obligation. And you don't start, you know, making similar comments to people. You try to bring it out in a way that they have to accept. They cannot argue. 
even though they, in their own minds, they might. But, and I never, I remember another time, I had a, a very good friend, a co-worker, and we had to work closely together, and we became friends, except that his language was, you know, it was really something to be shunned, you might say. So one day I took him aside, and I said, you know, I really enjoy your company in many respects. There's one thing I do not like, and that is your language. That man said, what do you mean, my language? And I said, your colorful words, you put it mildly. And you know, from that point on, I never heard him talk about that in that way. Because it hit home. I wasn't going to beat him over the head with it. But I thought, I want him to know that he is really doing himself a disservice by talking that way. And, you know, he'd, he'd make uh, a drunken sailor, a truck driver embarrassed, I think, with some of his words, but it really changed. And after that, um, when he later got married, because this was many years ago, and uh, he and his wife became very close friends. And we really enjoyed their company uh, because he no longer spoke that way. So it becomes a responsibility that each of us has to reflect the teachings and the love that Christ has given us to everyone else that we meet. Okay. Now Luke can say the prayer all by himself and, and continue the meeting. Uh, any any questions? Jim? Good. That's, you know, that's, you don't really have to do anything significantly different than who you are. God is not asking you to change significantly. He's saying, use the talents and the graces that you have to reflect Him to your neighbor. Period. Yes, ma'am. That's right. Go by the little adage that troubles, well, love when shared is twice as good. Troubles when shared 
they're only half as bad. Right? Love, when shared, is twice as good. Troubles, when shared, are only half as bad. And that reflects the Christian, the Catholic way of living. That we should be joyous in reflecting our Catholicism and not hide it. So often you'll hear somebody say, well, the two things you don't discuss in public are taxes and religion. And I think that's incorrect. I could care less about the taxes. Uh, But your faith, and you don't really have to go out of your way to talk about it. You should reflect it through how you act. Yes, Betty? Right, right. Yeah, that first point I think is rather important. When people come into your home, does it reflect your belief? Is there a crucifix or a beautiful picture? I don't mean you have to look like a gallery inside. Uh, although I do know a house that sort of looks like that. Uh, but uh, I think some indication that you are a Catholic or a Christian uh, is important because generally people will notice that and hopefully respond. Right? Might make them a little uneasy, but that's all right. That is a message in itself. Yes, sir. That was just recently? Hmm, okay. Amen. Amen. A beautiful example. Yes. No, you can't play the Mormon people down. I don't agree with some of their beliefs, but they are good people. I've worked with several Mormons, and they are very good Christian people. Yes, by all means. Um, and a good, that's a good point and a good reflection of their beliefs. You have to admire them as well as the Jehovah Witnesses and those people that come to the door, because how many Catholics would do that? Oh, no. Okay. Anyone else? I want to continue this line of thinking after each of our classes, because as I've said before, by the time we finish this, which will be in two more weeks, and certainly by Easter, I would like each of you to be able to have in your mind and your heart 
a response to give somebody when asked, why are you a Catholic? And I would like to have you think about a answer that is meaningful to you and one that your everyday actions will reflect. Okay. So let's work on that. All right. Give it some thought. I'm not going to ask you to write it out if you want to. I'd be glad to critique it, but that's not important. You know, I'm not going to write to your mother and say you didn't fulfill a class project or anything like that. It is something for your purpose, your growth. Okay. Any questions? Let's end with a prayer. Lord Jesus, we are a part of you, and you are a part of us. Help us to hold in our minds and our hearts that part of you that is within us. But help us also to share it with others, whether it be in a smile, or a helping hand, or a gift. Let it always be a part of you that we give because love when shared is twice as good and troubles when shared are only half as bad. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name.